Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that sentence. It's going to be a great uh, day. Guy Talk's going to happen in about a minute and a half, and I always enjoy that as well. So um, Dr. Peter Kapsner is going to be on the panel, and t- Pastor Tom Brock, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Justin Jepson. That's the team today. It's going to be a good one. And if you have questions, let us know what they are. You can send them in text form only. I will ask them on your behalf You've got a question, issue, concern, anything you hear us say you'd like clarification on, we'll do our best. Again, the number is 877-933-2484. Let me take 60 seconds, and I'll bring on the guys. February is our anniversary month here at Faith Radio, with a legacy stretching back to 1949. Through the years of ministry, friends who valued the daily Bible teaching and compelling conversations have given generously and sacrificially. And God has been at work through this growing radio outreach, bringing about life change and transformation. If you've been blessed by Faith Radio and have benefited by the programming made possible by the gift of others, will you make this month your time to join in support? Make a gift today at MyFaithRadio.com. Faith Radio offers a free resource that will ground you in your faith each week. It's the prayer devotional email, and it's easy to receive. Simply sign up at MyFaithRadio.com under the subscriptions tab. Then you'll be sent a weekly message with words of inspiration and prayer. It's a wonderful way to connect with God and equip you for the week ahead. Once again, just visit MyFaithRadio.com, click on subscriptions, and sign up. You'll be blessed by the prayer devotional email. Guy Talk's happening this hour, so let us know what your questions or issues are you'd like us to discuss, 877-93-FAITH. So here's an interesting story. I read this woman who was 5'3", female waitress in New Zealand, dragged a 2-foot lizard out of the restaurant. Hmm. They probably have a sign in the bathroom that says, all employees must wash hands after dragging lizards out of the restaurant. <laughs> I mean, I would, be, I would be out of that restaurant so fast. Wow. First of all, I'm a chicken. Secondly, I don't do well with lizards. Don't they eat lizard in New Zealand? Probably. Was that one of the meal trying to get away before? <laughs> so, hey, come back. You're Maybe. the customer ordered you. And Maybe. Okay. Yeah. So do you feel uh, like you're more at risk of hurting yourself in the kitchen or the garage? <laughs> For me, it's my garage. Your garage? Because yeah. I have to get on this weird ladder and I'm I'm at the age where I sh- I don't know if I should be getting on a no, ladder. No, you should at not all. get on ladders. <laughs> not without a helmet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, that's it. Yeah. What about you, Justin? I would say kitchen because I tend to hurry more if I'm trying to make something. Yeah. Cut something. I've cut myself more. Oh. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little more careful. You yeah. Know, operating tools and things like that in the garage. Yeah. Well, the kitchen scares me because of the heart attack issue with all that I eat. But apart from that. <laughs> In the, uh, That's the more dangerous place? It is the more dangerous yeah. part. But in the garage, uh, my dad was a home builder. I've been a woodworker all my oh. life. And in all these years, I've never had an accident except 
once where I cut two fingers with a bandsaw. Oh, you did? And that was tricky. So They but, remained on your hand, though, they didn't did. they? Okay, they did. Okay, good. What uh-huh. about you, Dr. Kaffner? <laughs> I definitely have a kitchen. Uh, I find myself not being able to get over the habit of cutting round objects like cantaloupe or uh, avocados or other melons uh, round side down. And so they, they have a tendency to sort of roll around while I'm cutting straight down at the same time. So <laughs> I certainly have sliced off a, a bit of my thumb uh, doing it that way. Yeah. So let's just mm-hmm. let's just say the kitchen's not a great place. How for about me. you, Bill? Uh, definitely the the kitchen. Yeah, uh-huh. definitely the kitchen. I just took a piece off my thumb the other day. Ouch. Yeah, that really hurt. <laughs> Ooh. So I still have the Band-Aid on, you guys can oh, see. Right. Yeah, but it matches my skin, so mm, nice. it's in kind of disguise. All right, let's talk about uh, the Houston Astros. They get kind of nailed for cheating. Your thoughts? Should they, they all apologized. What do you think? I thought it was pretty interesting, Bill, that on the front end of it, the whistleblower, a, a pitcher by the name of Mike Fires, who was in the clubhouse at the time, he, he was a little bit reviled and a bit shunned sort of by the baseball community at first. But I think as the revelations have continued to move forward, some of the guys in baseball that were their opponents at their time, whether it be the Yankees or the Dodgers, they're starting to think, hey, hang on a second, this kind of cost us the World Series, which no means everything for sort of future endorsements in baseball. I mean, if you've got a championship ring, not just while you're playing, but after you're playing, it, it really sets you up in a different kind of way. And so you're starting to see a whole lot of bitterness come out and actually real support of Mike Fires and Apparently what I read today is the Astros news conference landed like a big dud where they sort of said, well, it really wasn't that big a deal. Let's move on. Uh, clearly, some of the baseball guys rallying around it are saying, hang on just a minute. We're, we sort of had it with you guys in the Astros. And they haven't been too kind or too clean in their language related to it. That's for sure. Mm. When you get that much money involved, it's amazing how emotions can get up around these things. And it's also amazing how people are willing to cheat, you know, again, to get that edge, to get just enough to get over the top. Uh, unfortunately, it's all too common in human endeavors. We yeah. see this in business. We see this in a lot of places. It's not right, but it's reality. Mm-hmm. You know, th- what this is reminding me of, at age 16, in Spanish class, I sat next to Debbie Franco, who was brilliant in Spanish, and I cheated off of her paper, didn't think a thing about it. And then I got more serious about Christianity a few years later, and I- I'm wondering... Was I even saved that I was so dead to a, a conscience thing? So, I mean, I think I was, but boy, was I off. It's easy for all of us to do that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I learned in ministries is pastors like to be liked. I don't know if anybody knows that, but they have this, they like to be liked. <laughs> and you got to get over that somewhere along the way. Because it's interesting, Jesus genuinely loved people, but he had no illusions about human behavior. And once I realized that I love people genuinely, but I have no illusions about who goes to church or who doesn't go to church and their behavior, it made things a lot easier it to does. work with. I didn't there, get disappointed as much, and I just said, now we've got to do something about this. Let's talk about this. The verse that you reminded me of is in John, Jesus was not entrusting himself to any man, for he knew what was in man. In yeah. other words, total depravity. Yeah. <laughs> is it, is it, has it been actually verified that they for sure were stealing the signs in the video? Mm-hmm. And the, so it's for sure. And they're, they're not owning up to it. So I'm Oh, they're gonna, owning up to it. They are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, I think I mean, that the main consideration is how far it actually went at this point. I mean, clearly there was some sort of garbage can banging in the dugout that was signaling what the pitch might be. But there's even conversation <laughs> that some of the players were actually wearing buzzers on their uh, sort of on their undergarments to be able to signal what pitch it was. And it was 
kind of made manifest or one of their players hit a home run to to win a, a significant game in the playoffs. And a lot of times when they get to home plate, they celebrate by ripping off the guy's jersey and everything else. And he's sort of caught on camera running towards home plate saying, don't rip off my jersey, don't rip off my jersey. And <laughs> they asked him about it afterwards. He said, well, my wife would have been a bit embarrassed, but it, it seemed like a pretty lame explanation at that point. Mm. Mm. Well, this is, I mean, it just seems like it's another thing. You know, it's with there were steroids, it was cork bats. I think there's always this, I don't know, way to uh, forfeit one's integrity to try to get the, 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 the upper edge on your opponents. And so, I mean, we see this all over sports and all over life in general. Unfortunately. Right. Wasn't it Rockefeller at the turn of the uh, 20th century? And the newspaper reporter asked him, he's the most wealthy man in America. How much is enough? And he said, one dollar more <laughs> and that's human nature it doesn't matter how many times we win how much money we have we just like one dollar more and to be able to, to finally put that behind us and to really say no i'm not going to live that way i tell you it's a conscious choice and one by yeah. strong faith yeah a listener uh, just chimed in and said they should have been punished more no world series hmm. yeah that's some of the, that's some of the momentum i'm actually reading about right now is they're saying it wasn't enough and and people are saying it won't be enough until, as your listener just said, uh, that they strip away that World Series title, which to me seems inherently fair. I mean, if it was if, if they had such a major advantage as they did in that situation, how can you sort of award them a World Series championship as a result? Mm-hmm. Right, here's a uh, question. Recently attended a funeral where the pastor quoted Jesus by saying, over the coffin, I am the way, the truth and the life. He did not include Jesus's following words. No one comes to the father but by me. After the service, uh, I asked the pastor why he left off Jesus' final words, and he said, well, I didn't want to offend anybody. Give me a break. <laughs> Give me, Yeah, let's not offend them. Let's let them go to hell. That, that's horrible. I've heard that before, too, when, when a pastor will leave that line off. Like, who is he to edit Jesus Christ, you know? Well, that's exactly mm-hmm. it, because here's what we forget. Jesus has become a great figure in the church, but he's not a reality for most people. And as a result... We love his philosophy. We love his goodness, except when it's something that we don't like. And then we want to change that. And when it comes to something like this, that pastor obviously wants to be more loved by the people around him. And you don't have to be harsh about it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be mean and and cram it down people's throat. Mm -hmm. But when you're going to quote from the Bible, give Jesus the full context. Yep. And I would Mm -hmm. say to people listening, if you go to a church like that, where your pastor is not willing to say, Jesus is the only way to heaven, I'd find another church. I mean... We had uh, Tom and I served Hope Lutheran Church for years, and we had a lady come up to me once who had joined our church. She said, "Can I tell you why we joined?" And she told me of a of a liberal ELCA Lutheran Church down the block where she used to attend. One day, the pastor got in the pulpit, and the text was John fourteen six. I'm the only way to heaven. From the pulpit, he said, "I don't know why Jesus said that. We know our God is bigger than that." And Juanita said to her husband, he's correcting Jesus from the pulpit. Let's get out of here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you've got a pastor like that that is not willing, well, the the best thing to do is remove him. Say, bye-bye now. We'll give you a severance package. But if you can't remove him, I'd go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting about that, I mean, I absolutely agree with what you two brothers are saying. But when you, when you, it's stripping, um, you know, it's making, it's making, it's stripping it from the actual meaning. And so if Jesus is just the way, the truth, and the life, and you stop there, well, to what? What does that mean? I'd be mm-hmm. just like, well, 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 where is that pastor pointing the congregation to? Yeah. You know, and it's been said that, I mean, 
the gospel is offensive. So anytime we try to remove the offense of the gospel, it's not the gospel. But we don't have to communicate it offensively. No, that's right. It has enough, it's, it's enough offense yeah. in and of itself. You know, <laughs> and it's been said that the Christianity is is the most inclusive, exclusive religion. So it's it's inclusive in that everyone can come. Mm-hmm. But Jesus said, "There's only one door. Mm-hmm. And there's only one way, and it's mm-hmm. me." You know, and so it's interesting that that was mentioned at a funeral, and I, you know, maybe that was pastor not being sure of where that person was at. Maybe this pastor doesn't know where he, well, he or she was at. I don't well, know. Somebody, so. somebody said, you know, you Christians are so narrow-minded. You know, Jesus is the only way. And, and somebody responded, I can afford to be narrow-minded. I'm right. <laughs> is that a bumper sticker in your car? Yeah, I thought not, I saw it on the parking lot. Not, on the way. And that is a little offensive, oh, okay. but it's the truth. I've so. got a grandfather clock at home that I, it's a kit I built years ago. Put one of those together. I who, watched the Who hasn't, by the way? Who hasn't? Yeah, who everybody, hasn't built a grandfather clock? Everybody <laughs> I that. haven't. I missed the you boat. Know, I, I like yours over at the, the corner, Bill. It Thank looks you. really good. Yeah, it's, it's cherry, good cherry wood. Yeah. But that pendulum swings back and forth. At the turn of the 20th century, the pendulum was on a legalistic end, very high legalistically about you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to follow here. Then along came the German theologians and kind of started pushing it in the other direction. Liberalism. And now with, from the 60s on, up until now, we have pushed that pendulum so far to the other side. And I'm not sure it's ever going to come back. I'm not sure it is either, but we have pushed it so far to the other side that Jesus is an embarrassment mm-hmm. for most of the people today that claim his name mm-hmm. in some way. Because they like some of the things he said, they don't like all the things he said. And I learned a long time ago, I've got to put up with everything he said, believe it and do it. Or else, mm-hmm. I'm ashamed of him, and mm-hmm. I'm not. All right, let me take a little break. I talk underway. Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Justin Jepson. That's the power panel today. We'll be back in 90 seconds. personal jealousy right now, which is not ever good, but Tom Parrish during the break said that he met the three stooges. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Larry Moe and Curly Joe. That's... Curly was gone by that point. Okay. Hmm. That's crazy. All right. Uh, here's a question. My wingman, Terry, said, uh, would the power panel be willing to discuss the difference between regeneration and sanctification as both seem to happen instantaneously and are also a lifelong process? I'll let these guys answer it, but first let's talk about what regeneration is. It's the same as rebirth or new birth. When you get regenerated, you're born again. Mm -hmm. But do you know that the word really only appears like three times in the New Testament? And Jesus said, you must be born again of the water and the spirit in John. And then twice in Peter, we are born again through the word of God. And then thirdly, through the resurrection of Christ. So according to the Bible, the way you're born again is not praying a prayer or this or that. It's, number one, being born of the water and the Spirit. I think that's a reference to baptism. Number two, it's through the Word of God. The Word of God converts us and pre- and the resurrection of Christ is where we're born again uh, out of the dead. So that's what regeneration is. And, uh, you know, what a Lutheran and a Baptist might say, we'd have some disagreements on whether... You know, baptism really does anything or not. But that's, that's the, now, is there a difference between regeneration and sanctification, which is the process of being made holy by the Holy Spirit? 
What do you guys think? I thought you were going to let the other guys go first. Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I would say, um, you know, the Bible talks about and, you know, three different tenses of salvation that I have been saved. I am being saved and I will be saved. Mm -hmm. And so that I have been saved um, speaks to a justification. Something in the past happens instantaneously. And I think that at the cross, at the cross, but it happens in a sense. So I'm I'm opened up to Titus three. It says that he saved us, a past past tense, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace. So I would say that regeneration is that act of us becoming from spiritual death to spiritual life, being born again. Mm-hmm. So now we're, we're in the family. But now we spend the rest of our lives acting like the family. In a sense, we become who we already are. We're in Christ. And that sanctification is I am being saved. Yep. And that's a lifelong journey of continual transformation into Christ-likeness. And the future is I will be saved. I will be saved. Glorification. glorification. Yep. I, that's uh, past tense. I was saved mm-hmm. from the penalty of sin. That's yep. called justification. Right. Present tense, I am being saved from the, the power, power of sin. sin. That's sanctification. Then future tense, I will be saved. Glorification at the end from the presence, from the presence of, of sin. That's right. It's, it's very yeah. helpful. The, but the question that might be controversial is, when did you get regenerated? When did that happen? Was it when you prayed the prayer? Was it when you asked Christ into your heart? Was it when you were baptized, when you heard a sermon? John 3 is a text I've worked on an awful lot. and Because he's talking to Nicodemus about this. And at the end of the, that text, when he's talking about being born again, and Nicodemus goes, how can that be? And he says, you're a teacher of Israel, you should know. Basically, Jesus says, it's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes, but suddenly it's there. My understanding is that sanctification and regeneration are the work of the Holy Spirit. When I wake up spiritually, does that mean that from that point on, I'm always going to be awake spiritually? I'm not sure about that because I need to be woke up spiritually to even respond to Jesus, Mm -hmm. to even say, you're Lord and Savior. But the problem is how many people have come forward at churches and done that and really came under conviction at that moment and then walk away and don't come back. That's Mm -hmm. where sanctification comes in because sanctification is kind of like that that uh, smack upside of the head of the Holy Spirit, where in circumstances, failures, disappointments, where do we go? Who do we turn to? The only way I've grown in my faith is through my mistakes and through trials. It's not because I sat in a seminary of good theology. I mean, I learned a lot intellectually, but it was in the pain that I finally had to cry out, Jesus, you know, save me. Jesus, help me. And the sanctification part is almost a daily event. Oh, it me. is. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, we want to separate. Justification is different from sanctification. We're saved because of our justification. Sanctification is the up and down process of being made holy. I've got good days. I've got bad days. So you want to maintain they're two different things. But it's also true. If there's no sanctification in your life, you weren't justified. Right. Yeah. We're saved by grace alone. But uh, how did one person put it? Uh, we're saved by grace alone, but grace never is alone. It always gives you the Holy Spirit, which to a degree changes your life. Again, people want a ticket. We want a ticket that says you're not going to go to hell. You're going to go to heaven. Let's get the ticket and then go live the way we want. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Jesus says, I don't want to give you a ticket. I want to give you a lifelong relationship. And I want you to become like me and know me. And that's where sanctification yeah. comes in because I don't think like Jesus and, and a lot I of don't people, behave like him. And a lot of people mm-hmm. say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, uh, didn't we do all this great stuff? 
depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. They never repented of their evil doing. You cannot live in impenitent sin and say, I've been saved by grace. We are saved by grace alone, but it always changes you. And I think that image of, of sanctification that comes to my mind is Jesus as our good shepherd, that sometimes sanctification does take, you know, the, the shepherd's hook and we need to be pulled back. But often he's, and when we go off course, he, he comes after us. Yes. But it does take a cooperation with the grace of God of listening, mm-hmm. continuing to the voice of our shepherd mm-hmm. and following him towards the abundant life that he's um, giving, continually offering to us, inviting us into each day. One of the advantages I had working with Tom Brock for many years is that he was so thankful I was wrong because I keep saying, Tom, you need to repent. Mm-hmm. And we do that a lot to each other. <laughs> so he we, was always wrong. Constantly and I say, no, Tom, you need to days. repent. I know we did. Yeah. And it I'm was glad good we're sitting in between you two. I we just were, don't, yeah. Things are getting this is the first Please guy, break it up, Justin. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. This is the first pastor I've worked with that was honest with me. I mean, mm-hmm. truly honest about who he was, who I was. That hurt, but he was honest about me, too. But in that... Let's do this on the air. In that, I think we grew. You guys I really go ahead. I do, too. I'll stay out of the way. No, I think we're, we can move on right now. Really? <laughs> Anything from Peter? Is he still with us? <laughs> yeah, Peter's Oh, I, you still know, with us. I was having so much fun listening, I forgot I was part of the panel. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I think I'm running in roughly the same lanes you all are on so many of these things. I find it really interesting um, conversation, I think. Uh, one of the images that I'm, I'm really compelled by in the New Testament is, is Paul sort of often offers this binary choice in life. Either you're going to be a slave to sin uh, and controlled by sin in your life, uh, untethered from God kind of life, or you're going to be uh, a slave to the Spirit, or you're going to be having the, sort of this renewed power at work in your life. And so when I think about the word regeneration, whatever the ritual might be, whether it's uh, through baptism waters, through uh, a prayer that you pray on your own, whether it's something that happened at youth group. Um, Jesus's primary concern, it, it seems to me, he says some 90 times in his gospels, come and follow me, follow me, which meant basically uh, listen to me as your teacher, as your guide, as your shepherd throughout the course of your life and, and participate in the kind of power wielded in my kingdom. And and I, I think if I lose sight of that too much and I start thinking that uh, Jesus, all he really came to do was to make sure that we get positioned correctly for heaven, this life doesn't make a lot of sense then in, in light of that, um, if, if that's what salvation's about. So I look at regeneration as similar to you guys and saying that when somebody decides they're going to surrender their life or say that critical yes in whatever version they say it, however they say it to Jesus and say, yes, I will follow you. There is a new power active at work in their life that that frees them from sort of the power of sin having the final say and and releases the sanctifying work of the spirit that continues, I think, as you guys have said, to make us whole, at least to some degree in this life. But it's also providing a, a foretaste for us of the life to come. It gives us hope in this life when I actually can love another person well, when I actually can take delight in little things or, or laugh in freedom. Uh, my spirit unencumbered, to sleep in peace, like these sorts of things are the sanctifying work of the spirit in this life. But they also give me hope about the life that is to come when this whole thing is going to be set right. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just, all I would add is that Jesus's primary concern is whether we are following him. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent, Peter. Great. Uh, everyone's doing great. Can't argue with that. No, I no. can't argue with that. All right. <laughs> let me take a little break. When we come back, lots more guide talk. Let us know what questions you might have. You can send me a text, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back.
Guide Dog is happening, let, let us know what questions you have for us. I have uh, on the power panel uh, Peter Kapsner, Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Pastor Justin Jepson. Uh, that's the, the lineup today. Um, so here's a question, and Peter, this thing got started by you because you responded so nicely to my question. I was talking about Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, where it said, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So how will he bring salvation to those who are waiting for him? Yeah, I th- my best understanding of that, Bill, and it's something that the guys referenced earlier, too, just this idea of the salvation that is yet to come, and and something I think we talked about just before break there. I When I read Ephesians 1, uh, 14 and following, actually starting a bit with 13, it talks about the idea that when you believed or when you leaned into and surrendered your life to Jesus, you were marked in Jesus with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And, and that goes a lot into what we were talking about. And the early church did a really interesting practice. They would baptize, and as soon as they would come out of the waters of baptism, they would anoint uh, the baptism, the person who had been baptized, they would anoint their head with oil to confirm the Holy Spirit in their life. And that was seen as uh, then Ephesians 1.14, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And sort of the idea that it seems like uh, the scriptures are talking about, and I remember having a theology professor that sort of blew my mind in a beautiful way with all of this, is uh, that we have to assume that the world is a broken and a lost place, that we are in, in Pauline language, we're sort of living in the midst of this present darkness. And so any sense of the fullness of peace and hope and love that our hearts long for, we're only ever going to get in part in this life. It's sort of, but, but they're real and they're a deposit and they convince our hearts, uh, not necessarily our heads, but they convince our hearts of the fullness of that which is to come. When Jesus does return, we're waiting for that marriage supper of the Lamb where he gathers everybody back into himself and begins to renew all things. And so um, it, it's the equivalent of having a million dollars waiting for us and, and Jesus gives us just a slice of it to say the rest is coming, I promise you, and I will be here all along the way as you're walking through a broken and a fractured world so that you have a hope in the midst of all of this. And by the way, turn and shine this hope to everyone else. Live as if this deposit in this future is real because it is and call everybody else back to this, this idea. So I've heard it said that we are people of the future living in the present to shine a light of that future to a world so they too can walk towards it with us. Who wants to follow that? Well, it's interesting because if you think about it, Western Christianity has put tremendous emphasis on salvation being someplace we go after we die. And but Jesus says it starts the moment you believe. For a Jew and for that time period, salvation would have not only meant that, but it also would have meant a restoration mm-hmm. of the creation, going back to what God originally intended in the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve. And so when we talk about this, uh, this salvation, it's not just, you know, he comes to get those to take them to heaven, but he comes now to restore yeah. for us everything that he intended in the first place. And, and that I'm really looking forward to. And, you know, something I learned in, it was either college or seminary, to be fancy if I could just for a second, it's called realized eschatology. Eschatology yeah. is the end of time. Some of the end of time stuff that everybody thought was only going to happen at the end got realized in the life of Christ. For instance, the, at the end of time, the dead will be raised. Jesus raised the dead. At the end of, uh, of time, everybody will be healed. Well, Jesus healed people. And a lot of the stuff that the Jews were looking to happen at the very end of time and will 
got realized present tense in the ministry of Jesus. So it's called realized eschatology, that some of the end time stuff Jesus brought while he was on earth. Now, that it, what's, it, and, but we live right now in the already not yet age. We're already saved, but not yet. We're already uh, uh, healed and whole, but not yet. We got one foot in each, each uh, camp. But one thing that it is good, there is something, uh, an, an error in Christendom right now called overrealized eschatology. And these are the people that are expecting all the dead to be raised, all my body ailments to be healed, all my financial problems and marriage to be healed. And these are the health and wealth preachers that think, no, no, that's not for the end. That's for right now. Well, no, uh, not until the end will all that stuff happen. So, and Yeah, and Tom, to go along with it, I think that's really well said. It's, it's people like Oprah Winfrey and Richard Rohr and some others um, who would be arguing for to, sort of what you just said, an overrealized eschatology and their version of it is that uh, all we have to do is sort of get it right on earth, that if we do the right amount of justice and do the right amount of sort of brotherly love on this earth, we'll actually usher in that messianic era ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're not leaning into God to do all of that. We just are, you know, we're we're a few generations from tearing down all the structures that are stopping us and making sure we can live in this brotherhood of peace. And it it really is a deceitful thing. But but to your point, you know, when, when somebody, and I'm sure our listeners know this kind of thing, that you get a really difficult bit of news in your life, whether it is losing a job or um, one of your children begin to sort of walk away from the faith or you get a terrible diagnosis. And when the Bible talks about you get sort of this little whisper, even if it's just for a second of peace that kind of crosses your soul in that moment, like, oh my gosh, all will be well, even though there's still the anxiety and turmoil. It's that peace that we're talking about, Tom, that you just said, the already not yet. I get a little taste of the peace and that gives me hope for the yeah. fullness of the peace that is yet to come. And it allows me to keep carrying through or it's grieving, but not grieving as those who have no hope or being able to somehow love your enemies. All these other worldly things that are part of the fullness of the future, we get a little taste of now. And in that place, we're sort of being saved from the lies and the delusions of this world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really a powerful invitation. Yeah, but I'll, let me give you one more example of overrealized eschatology. I'm talking, I, I won't name them, but I could, the, the health and wealth preachers on TV, that you believe hard enough you're always going to be healed. And I remember right. being asked to visit an older woman in the hospital who was dying, who went to one of these churches where, no, no, I'm healed, I'm claiming it. So I went into her bed in her hospital room, and, I, and there she was crumpled up on her bed, and, you know, Mrs. So and so I'm here to pray for you. Thank you, uh, Pastor. I know I'm healed. Okay, but just in case you're not, and if the Lord decided to take you home, no, 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 I'm healed. I'm claiming this. Well, a few years, a few days later, she was dead. And, you know, my thought is, if there's one people on earth that should be able to talk about death, it's the Christian church who knows about the resurrection. But here she was living in denial I think because of some false teaching she was getting at her, I think she was at a Pentecostal church, this woman. But, you know, to I do believe God heals, et cetera, et cetera. But there's nothing in the Bible that says, if I believe something hard enough, God has to do it. Uh, that's not in the book. The closest you'd get to that is that faith will move mountains, but that's not what that is saying. So, yeah. so in Matthew 27, you have the Jesus has been crucified and he's in the grave. And then what do we read about? We read after, you know, on, when as that whole weekend occurred, this, some of the saints were raised from the dead mm-hmm. and wandered around Jerusalem. Realized eschatology. Yep. And that, there's that, that reality. And I've often wondered, what happened to those people? Did they immediately then go to be with the Lord or <laughs> they live out their lives again? Yeah. But it shows the power of the Lord that no matter where we're at or what situation we're in, 
it's not out of his realm mm-hmm. with his power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think going back to the sanctification uh, piece that we're talking about earlier, I think this ties into this and some of the, the kind of connecting some of the dots of the comments that you're making in, a, in this day of the Lord that's coming. You know, that we're not only saved from something, we're not, you know, we're saved from the power of sin, we're saved from God's just wrath upon our lives, but we're saved for something. Mm-hmm. And to something. And, and to mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, the Bible, you know, Ephesians, as, as Peter was talking about earlier, that we're called saints, which are literally ones set apart for a holy purpose, mm-hmm. which is why in First Peter First Peter 3, I'm talking about the day of the Lord, he said, what sort of people ought you to be uh, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord? Mm-hmm. And so this idea that we actually get to be ones that get to partner with Jesus in bringing the reality of heaven to earth, mm-hmm. giving us that increasing crescendo of foretaste until that the day of the Lord does come and he comes back and makes all things and we, we speed new. up the second coming. We by, speed up by, the second coming. By witnessing, by li- the living the life, et cetera. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's another uh, question. First John five thirteen says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. How can we know we have eternal life? That's the best question I've ever heard. Thank you very much. Indeed it is. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. And can you, well, can I, can I give you the answer to that? Please. Well. You got so, the mic. I was in college leading a Bible study. After the Bible study, a college girl says, Tom, can I talk to you privately? I said, yeah. And Tom, are you sure you're saved? He said, I think I'm saved. No, are you sure you're saved? And I said, yes. And she left, and I'm sitting there in my dorm room thinking, did I just lie? Because I don't think I was sure. But then during that time period, somebody pointed that very verse out, First John five yeah. thirteen. I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Tom, do you believe in the Son of God? I do. Well, does it say that you may hope maybe you'll get eternal life, or you'll get it if you're good enough? No. Well, what does it say? You'll have eternal life. Okay, Tom. God... Who wrote that verse? Well, God did. Can God lie? No. So as long as you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, what can you know for sure you've got? And that's when the light bulb went on. That's when I got what's called assurance of salvation. And it was it explained to me that because my salvation depends on Christ and not on me, hallelujah, you can be sure you're saved. And that changed. I, I think I was saved before then, but I didn't have the assurance and I would never want to live without the assurance anymore. I mean, there are days I have my doubt, but, you know, we all got to fight those things. And uh, so there you go. The problem yeah. is not enough people know. Most Christians go to church every Sunday and really don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the problem is, as preachers and teachers of the Word, we're good at transferring information. We're not good at storytelling or doing it in a way that people understand. What I try to help people understand in this context is that this knowing is like standing in a room. And five feet away, you've got a full-length mirror that you can look at yourself in. On the other side of that full-length mirror, off to the side, is Jesus himself. Where are you looking? If you're looking at the mirror all the time, do I believe enough? Am I Mm -hmm. good enough? Do I go to church enough? Have I repented enough? You're lost because your salvation's in the mirror and there's no salvation. Mm -hmm. When you quit looking at yourself and say, he said it, Mm -hmm. and I know he's true, and I will trust him no matter what, then you know. There's somebody that... Uh, there's a story of some guy that gets shipwrecked and he's clinging to this rock in the middle of the ocean all night. And finally they rescue him and, and they said, you know, well, weren't you shaking? And he said, yeah, I was, but the rock wasn't. My faith is very up and down. I have doubt, et cetera, et cetera. But what I believe in never shakes. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that Hebrews 12, you know, fixing your eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And it, I've always been, it's so assuring to recognize that whatever Jesus starts, 
he finishes. Yes. Yeah. You know, in this first John five, I write these things. Well, what are these things? With reading the whole book of first John mm-hmm. really is about having confidence yep. Yep. That, that we know that we're in Christ. And, and, and the confidence too. Some people say, well, you're being arrogant to say that, you know, you're going to heaven. Well, that's true. If it depended on me, mm-hmm. then it would be arrogance and pride. And aren't I agree? But if my salvation depends 100% on Christ and the cross, then I can know for sure. And it's not arrogant because I didn't do it. He did. So in the early church fathers, when the, some of the Christians went into the arenas, to be torn apart by lions or to be struck down or burned like candles, mm-hmm. you know, on the crosses. It says that they sang. Mm-hmm. They sang because they were in harmony and they had assurance and they didn't like what was coming. Nobody wants the pain, but they knew who was coming for them yeah. and they knew where they were going. And this is temporary. Yeah. Amen. All right, we'll take a little break. We'll come back in 90 seconds. More Guy Talk. Let us know if you have a question or issue you would like us to discuss. 877 933 84. Be right back. All right, welcome back to Guy Talk. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Peter Kapsner. And Pastor Tom Brock and Pastor Justin Jepson and Pastor Tom Parrish. And then just me. That's it. I'm the chump. All right. Um, let's see here. Uh, this is an interesting uh, question. Matthew 10, Jesus says, Think not that I have come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. This is 3435. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against his mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This doesn't sound like a loving savior, does it? Hmm. Well, well, yeah, go ahead. Tom, you want, okay. Well, well it's interesting to say that doesn't sound like a loving savior because right after that it says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So it's actually talking about the kingdom of there's always going to be competing loves and Jesus comes and brings um, a separation said, if you're going to love me supremely and my allegiance and bring, give me full allegiance, that's going to bring division. That's going to invite conflict Mm -hmm. because there's always going to be competing loves. And sometimes it's those that are closest to us. And so um, his love, his love both unites in a sense, but also it can divide for those that don't also give their supreme love and allegiance to Christ. And the Bible says God is love. The Bible doesn't say God is mush, meaning he's got to make my family be just fine with my new faith, and he's got to make everything, you know, the, I've got some relatives that I'm uncomfortable with because of my faith and their faith and or their lack thereof, and I'm glad Jesus said that verse because it, it's the reality I live with. You, know? you look at Hollywood, look at the number of suicides, drug overdoses, multiple marriages, all kinds of problems. These are people with money. One of the problems I've heard from somebody that was in the Hollywood scene is they told me the biggest problem is everybody around you tells you what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. They will tell you how wonderful you are and how great you are and how loving you are. And he said, I, can't, I came to a point where I needed to do somebody that would tell me the truth. And Jesus comes to tell us the truth. So he does love us, but he's deadly serious and about sin. And he tells sin. us the truth because he loves us. Yes, he does. Yeah. And, and so we don't want to create this Jesus that's all mush right. and says what we want to hear. 
I want a Jesus that'll say to me, hey, Tom, you got some real serious problems mm-hmm. and you need to deal with that and come to me. That's where I get healthy. Mm-hmm. I. You know, I think I, some of the interesting things about this passage in Matthew 10, too, is he's um, it's sort of in the context of him telling his disciples that they're about ready to go to what he describes first, the lost sheep in the house of Israel, or sort of the power structures that be in Jerusalem and among the Jews that have uh, at this time become really corrupt in their wielding of their religious authority. And it, it might be really tempting for the disciples that as they have to face sort of that power and continue to follow Jesus, who doesn't have the same level of social power that so many of these people are wielding, that they might want to sort of step aside and maybe have even multiple allegiances, which um, would have been possible. And Jesus is basically, in in very stark terms, as he often does, uh, says that there's really only one way to the Father, as we described earlier, or there's only one path that leads to life. There's many paths that lead to destruction, or you, you can't serve two masters, or all of the language that he uses is different than what I think, Tom, you just said, is sort of the mush of the day where he's one option among many. And uh, and so these are very stark terms, but he does it often. And it's, it's actually encouraging the disciples a little bit to remind them as they're going into really harsh territory where they're going to take some significant hits to remember that he really is the only one that offers a pathway of life, which I think can be encouraging for so many of us that feel like, gosh, if I'm going to keep walking this out, I'm going to get pounded by the people that might be close to me. And yeah. that's yeah, and, not the easiest thing. And I think we can all identify with that. And, you know, Peter, let's talk about what happens when the church preaches God is mush. I, right. won't, I won't name him, but a very high up bishop in the ELCA Lutheran Church died recently. He was my bishop for years. He did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, and he wanted no one teaching at our seminary that did. He he promoted homosexuality and the acceptance of homosexual behavior by pastors. He promoted abortion rights. This is a, a bishop of the church who just died. Somebody asked me, do you think he's in heaven? And I said, only God can parse that one. But my, the problem is when you preach God is mush— Anything goes. And what's happened to these churches that are preaching God as much? We're talking the United Church of Christ, the ELCA Lutherans, PCUSA Presbyterians, the uh, Episcopalians. These mush churches that are God is love, so do what you want, they're almost non-existent. They're shrinking like crazy. And the churches that are maintaining that God is love, but it's true love with truth, those are the churches that are growing. So, I've done over yeah. 200 uh, weddings. Tom, I know you've done a lot, too, along that line. And it's become tradition where many brides and grooms want to write their own vows. So oh, yeah. you have to, you have oh, to work yeah. through that and try to get that straightened out. But in all the weddings I've done, in all the weddings I've attended, I've never heard a bride or a groom say to you, you know, honey, I'm going to be faithful to you 95% of the time. Mm-hmm. Everybody expects 100%. There'd be a big gasp if somebody said that. Yeah. We expect 100% fidelity to one another. And that even includes over mom and dad, brother and sister. Not that we don't love them, mm-hmm. but they take their rightful place. We understand that in marriage where we need to understand that with Jesus. Yeah. Amen. He comes first. All right, gentlemen, here's a correction, a gentle correction from a listener. Um, not sure who said it, but um, the ex- the exclamation, oh my gosh, the euphemism for oh my God. And if you check the origins in any modern dictionary, it is uh, if it's casually used, um, we are taking the, the Lord's name in vain. I agree. That's, that's I mean, I try, not, I, try, I try not to say even oh my gosh. Okay. But it does bug me when, I mean, I had to correct somebody today, Christian guy who said, my God. I said, you know, you shouldn't be saying that. Right. But, I, you know, even saying my gosh 
it sounds so much like, my God, maybe that's what he said, and I misheard him. So mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of resonate with that. Well, it's so culturally acceptable, and it's easy to slip out from all of us, that I appreciate the person who wrote in because I always try to give the congregations I serve permission to tell me where I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Permission to come up and say, do you realize what you said when you said that? But it's oftentimes I don't know what I've said. Sure, I didn't even realize it came out. So I'm thankful, and I agree with you, and keep it up and... Keep me on the right. Well, are you the one that said it? Tom? I pro- probably. I don't know. <laughs> would, oh my, well, let's make sure. Most would, would oh my goodness be as bad? I, I wouldn't even. I try even to stay away from that. Yeah. And, and I don't want to be a legalist. I don't know that it's a quote <clears throat> sin, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I remember saying "darn it" in a sermon once, and an older pastor took me saying, "You know, Tom, just because it's so close to damn it, you know, and it's probably I can't you said that on my show." What I did? <laughs> That's Darn right. it. I mean, we don't, don't I worry. Mean, We've got a seven second delay. We're nah. gonna and without <laughs> getting the listeners will never hear it. And without becoming legalistic about this, um, we've got to be real careful that we don't wind up parsing words all the time or mm-hmm. thinking that we've got to really, boy, we can't say those things. Because I think it goes back to the intention, the heart. I've got grandkids who say some really stupid things to me, and I love them anyway. Yeah, yeah. When they get to be 18 and 19 years old, if they say the same thing to me, it's going to be different. But in my presence with Jesus, I'm still a little child. Well, and you know, another one, I don't like it when a Christian calls somebody a fool. Matthew 5 says you can go to hell for calling somebody a fool. So we need to be very careful with our words. Well, and I think that also expands what taking the Lord's name in vain means. Mm -hmm. It's not just a single, you know, maybe a euphemism in place of God. You know, I think uh, Robertson, McQuilkin, and Paul Copen are two Christian apologists, ethicists that make this this case that, you know, when Jesus is talking about let your yes be yes and your no be no, and do not make or swear by an oath, um, that's taking the Lord's name in vain if you're mm-hmm. not faithful to your word mm-hmm. or to your promise because we are ones as Christians who bear the name of Christ. Mm-hmm. So if we're living in vain, that's the way that we actually take the name mm-hmm. of the Lord in vain. Both are true. Okay. Here's a question. I just want to know the difference between Baptist and Christian church. Most Christian churches are a little bit overwhelming for me. I just need more quiet. The difference between a Baptist church and a Christian church? Well, that's what the question is stated, okay. and I asked uh, him to restate it. Um, so, I just well, there's I'd something ask. called the Christian Church, which is Disciples of Christ, okay, which is very, very liberal now. And then there's Baptist churches, with the with the exclusion of the American Baptists, that can be very liberal. Generally, Southern Baptist, Independent Baptist, or conservative biblical churches. I'm not quite sure what he meant there. Yeah, it's tricky. All right, here's another question. How can a wife support her husband after a job loss? Go to work. <laughs> Oops. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's all right. That just came tumbling out. <laughs> well, I, I think certainly giving him room to share what's going on in his heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, not to badger. Yeah, we all need to work. And we all need the income. And I'm sure he's well aware of that as well. Now, after four months of not working, he probably needs to be badgered. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime... <laughs> He needs somebody that's going to listen to him, empathize with him, help him see where flaws might be, things he may have created that created this situation. Um, wives need to be there as a safety net. And men, I mean, if two men are uh, sitting next to each other on the plane, they talk about, what do you do for, oh, I, I, I'm a plumber. But two women sit next to each other on a plane, what do you, well, I've got a husband. You know, they talk relationships, men talk work. When a man loses a job, not that it's not hard on a woman, but when a man loses a job for some reason, that's really hard on him. And so have mercy. 
Yeah, and I would say alongside of that, just to encourage that his identity is not in his job. Amen. It's in Christ. You know, and I think we all have a proclivity of wanting to define ourselves by what we can do, what we accomplish, what our titles are. And so even just to affirm him as a father, affirm him as a husband, Mm -hmm. we all need encouragement. Mm -hmm. So I think encouragement and prayer. And even if you're not a father... You're, you've got your identity in Christ, so if you lose your job, your wife, your children, you still are a whole person in mm-hmm. Christ, and God still has a purpose for you on the planet. Mm-hmm. We express our identity in our roles, but our roles are not our identity. Amen. Yeah. Amen. All right. Peter, Tom, Tom, Justin, thank you so much for uh, being here today. It's been great. Thanks for having us, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, that wraps up uh, Guy Talk, and coming up next, we've got the beautiful and amazing Queens of the Roundtable. Keep your questions coming. Let us know what they are, 877-933-2484. I'll give that again a little slower, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.